if you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel 22. Today we're going to come to the end of this section, chapters 12 through 24, in which the case is made that the judgment that is about to happen to Jerusalem and Judah is justified based on the wickedness, the rebelliousness of the Israelites. In chapter 22, we have three oracles. In chapter 23, we have an allegory. And in chapter 24, a poem. And then something totally unexpected and quite shocking. Usually, well, as we've gone through Ezekiel, I've read everything that we've studied. Today, won't be, that won't be the case. I will read certain verses here and there. But I would encourage you uh, at some point this week to read chapters 22 23 and 24. In chapter 22, we have three oracles, and each one begins with the phrase, the word of the Lord came to me. The first oracle is found in verses 1 through 16. Jerusalem is described as a city of blood. The second, we read of the furnace of affliction. The third oracle, we find that all classes of people in Judah have sinned. Let's look at the first oracle briefly. The city of blood. Jerusalem is condemned as a city of blood. The sins involved are religious, sexual, social, and judicial, which we might not expect, because when you say, oh, it's a city of blood, it must be, um, and I don't say this lightly, like modern-day Chicago, where there are so many people being killed that that's what it's referring to. Um, I think this shows that our view of sin is actually quite narrow and ultimately quite wrong. Ezekiel is addressed the son of man and he is asked, will you judge her? That is, are you prepared to judge Jerusalem? And what is intended is that Ezekiel will be more than an arbiter. He will be the judge, he will be the prosecutor, and he will pronounce sentence. Jerusalem's already been found guilty. This is simply to confirm what people already know, that Jerusalem is guilty. Ezekiel is, in fact, justifying both the verdict and the sentence that will happen. Jerusalem is guilty of violating the laws of holiness, the holiness code found in Leviticus 17 through 26. We've already heard about her idolatry and breaking the Sabbath, but now we are told of other violations. If you look at verse number 7, uh, how they treat others with no respect, treated father and mother with contempt, oppressed the alien, mistreated the fatherless and the widow. How they treat other people. That's why Jerusalem is a city of blood. Again, we think, oh, blood, that means you kill somebody, you know, blood is shed. No, this is seen as these are sins of bloodshed. In verse number 10, how they sin sexually. They dishonor their father's bed. They violate women during their period when they are ceremonially unclean. They sin with a neighbor's wife. They sin with close relations. So there are the sins against other people with no respect, not treating them as those made in God's image. There is the sins of a sexual nature. Now there are, in verse number 12, sins of an economic nature. They accept bribes. They charge interest and excessive interest. And they get unjust gain from their neighbors by extortion. And the bottom line is, God says, you have forgotten me. 
See, God is the one who, who gave them these laws. And in violating them, they're basically saying, we don't care. They have forgotten who God is. And the verdict is, they are guilty. They will be dispersed among the nations. This is the sentence. They will be scattered through the countries, defiled in the eyes of the nations. The second oracle is the furnace of affliction. And if you read these verses, verses 17 through 22, you don't need to be an expert to know how to get metal from ore, how you purify, how you subject it to heat. You know, like if you have gold or silver, copper is mentioned here as well. And you put them uh, in a furnace and you put extreme heat and then the mineral impurities will come to the top, the dross, as it's called. And you scoop that off, and then what you have is a more pure form of the metal that you are looking for. Usually when we think of a furnace of affliction, we think, in fact, that God is trying to get rid of our sins. That God may, in fact, uh, subject us to difficulties, and we cry out to him, and these impurities are taken away. That's not the case here. If you look at verses 17 to 22, what God is saying is, you're all mineral impurities. That is to say, if you took the ore and you put it in the furnace, if you're Jerusalem and Judah, there's, n- there's nothing good. There's no pure, there's no gold or silver or copper to be taken from it. It's all mineral impurities. The Israelites are, in fact, nothing but impure. The third oracle is in verses 23 to 31. And basically this passage says, everybody has sinned. Begins with the princes, the priests, the officials, the prophets, and then the people of the land. In Romans 3.23, we are told, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, that's the case here in chapter 22. Um, Question, why does God begin with the, the political leadership, you know, the princes, and then he deals with the priests and the officials and the prophets? Because those who have been put in those positions have been put there by God. Okay? You know, we live in a democracy, and so we imagine that if somebody's in a position of authority, it's because we voted that person in. We put them in that position. And we forget something very important. No, God is the one who puts them in that position. And therefore, God has given them great responsibility and he requires of them that they do what is right. And so, um, too much is given, much is required. And the princes and the priests and the officials and the prophets, they were given these offices by God and they have abused them and they will, in fact, be found guilty. But let's not just pick on the elite. Everyone has been given something by God. And even the people of the land, they have a responsibility as well. While their leadership may have failed, that is no excuse. The political leadership may have failed, the spiritual leadership may have failed, but the people must, in fact, obey God. Now we come to chapter 23. And this is actually a continuation 
of sorts of what we saw in chapter 16, the story of the abandoned baby who was rescued and cared, cared for by a traveler. The traveler provided everything for her, entered into covenant marriage with her, but then the woman chose to live a life of promiscuous pro prostitution with anyone who passed by with whom she shared the gifts from her husband. But now the allegory is slightly different because now there isn't simply one woman. There are two women. They are the sisters. One is Samaria. The other one is Jerusalem. Samaria represents the ten tribes to the north who have been in exile for over 100 years at this point. And then uh, Jerusalem is in Judah and they are about to be destroyed because of God's anger. Look, if you would, in chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. This I want to read. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, there were two women, daughters of the same mother. They became prostitutes in Egypt, engaging in prostitution from their youth. In that land their breasts were fondled and their virgin bosoms caressed. The older was named Ohola, and her sister was Oholibah. They were mine and gave birth to sons and daughters. Ohola is Samaria and Oholiba is Jerusalem. These two sisters are seen as the brides of Jehovah or Yahweh. In verse number four, they were mine. Okay, and in verse number five, uh, Ohola engaged in prostitution while she was still mine. Okay. What follows in this chapter, the actions and the activities of Israel to the north, Samaria, and Jerusalem, Judah, to the south, are described in the crudest of terms, which most English translations really, really play down and soften. As one writer put it, despite the distasteful theme and indelicate language, the reader of these verses must appreciate that this is the language of unspeakable disgust and must recognize Ezekiel's passion for God's honor and his fury at the adulterous conduct of his covenant people. The feeling of nausea, which a chapter like this arouses, must be blamed not on the writer of the chapter, nor even on its contents, but on the conduct which had to be described in such revolting terms. It is a very difficult chapter to read. It's one of those passages that you say, this is in the Bible? I couldn't imagine that such language would be found in Scripture. The chapter, this difficult chapter, can be divided into four sections. First of all, it talks about Samaria, verses 5 through 10, and then about Jerusalem, verses 11 through 21, and then the fate of Jerusalem, which is what Ezekiel is all about, verses 22 to 35, and then finally, verses 36 to 49, the abominable acts of both sisters are reviewed and the judgment is pronounced. Some things for us to consider. First of all, and we saw this earlier, but the unfaithfulness of God's people began in Egypt. Okay? We like to think, or some people like to think, that the Israelites were these poor, oppressed, righteous people in Egypt. That they were worshiping God, they were following God and keeping the commandments. Well, there were no commandments at that point, but they were doing what is right but they were oppressed and made slaves. And then God said, you know what? I'm going to rescue them. And he rescued them. But as we've seen, in fact, the Israelites were worshiping Egyptian gods. That's why when Moses was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, they're like, 
yeah, we don't know if he's coming back. Let's make a golden calf. Who would ever think to make a golden calf? Of people who had lived in Egypt, because that was one of the gods of Egypt. What we find in this chapter is that the life of promiscuous prostitution began even before they were rescued in the Exodus. It is, as one writer puts it, this is their original sin. You want to talk about the Garden of Eden? That's Egypt. That God brought them there. He delivered through Joseph, Jacob and his descendants. But then we find 400 years later that they are wicked, unrighteous, promiscuous people. If you look at verse number 19, she recalled the days of her youth when she was a prostitute in Egypt. So all of this wicked behavior, it didn't begin in the wilderness. They have a long history of it. Secondly, the language of unfaithfulness in this chapter is explicitly sexual. And it's beyond lust, adultery, prostitution. Again, uh, I would encourage you to read it. It is quite explicit. And then we find something interesting. The ten tribes of the North Samaria are called the older sister. And I'm not quite sure why that is. It could be because she went into exile first. But we find that the younger sister, Jerusalem, followed her example but went beyond. She was even more depraved than her sister. If you look at verse number 11, her sister Oholibah saw this, yet in her lust and prostitution she was more depraved than her sister. They went after false gods. Idolatry is their sin. And so the judgment that is coming is more than deserved. Look at verse number 45. We'll read this to the end of the chapter. But the righteous men will sentence them to the punishment of women who commit adultery and shed blood because they are adulterous and blood is, in, is on their hands. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Bring a mob against them and give them over to terror and plunder. The mob will stone them and cut them down with their swords. They will kill their sons and daughters and burn down their houses. So I will put an end to the lewdness in the land that all women may take warning and not imitate you. You will suffer the penalty for your lewdness and bear the consequences of your sin of idolatry. Therefore, you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. Idolatry, adultery, they're used interchangeably because they belong to God. They are in covenant with him, but they choose to worship other gods. It is like someone being married to another person. And then, in fact, they cheat on that person. That's adultery, idolatry, adultery. Judah is guilty of this and will suffer the consequences. Finally, we come to the last passage of this difficult section, chapters 12 to 24. And it shows the coming judgment to be deserved. Something to note, and that is, earlier in the series we have seen that the prophetic word is often specific in the date on which the vision is given, or the word of the Lord comes. Here, we are given that as well. The book of Ezekiel opens with uh, chapter 1, verse 2, on the fifth of the fourth month, It was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. So now it is almost four and a half years later. Look, if you would, at verses 1 and 2. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day, the word of the Lord came to me. 
Son of man, record this date, this very date, because the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. This day is significant because on this day, hundreds of miles away, Nebuchadnezzar is beginning his siege of Jerusalem. It's interesting that some commentators really struggle with this. It's like, well, you know what? Uh, Ezekiel must have been in Palestine when he wrote this. No, it is a word from the Lord. The Lord tells him this day. No cell phones, no satellite dishes, no 24-hour news. It's hundreds of miles away. How could Ezekiel know this? God tells him on this day. For four and a half years, Ezekiel has been telling people judgment is coming. And on this day, it begins. And here at the end of this section of justifying, we have a poem. Verse 3, tell this rebellious people a parable and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Put on the cooking pot, put it on and pour water into it. Put into it pieces of meat, all the choice pieces, the leg and the shoulder. Fill it with the best of these bones. Take a pick of the flock, pile wood beneath it for the bones, bring it to a boil, and cook the bones in it. There's no religious language here in this poem. In fact, we believe, many believe, that this in fact was uh, sort of um, like a nursery rhyme, a common cooking song, if you wish. You know, that you get the pot, you put the water in it, you put the choice pieces And then when you take the meat out, then you continue to boil the bones for the broth. Um, So what does it mean? Well, in verses 6 on, it is explained. Verse 6. And we have another poem that follows, by the way. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to the city of bloodshed, to the pot now encrusted, whose deposit will not go away, Empty it piece by piece without casting lots for them. For the blood she shed is in her midst. She poured it on the bare rock. She did not pour it on the ground where the dust would cover it. To stir up wrath and take revenge, I put her blood on the bare rock so that it would not be covered. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to the city of bloodshed. I too will pile the wood high. So heap on the wood and kindle the fire. Cook the meat well, mixing in the spices and let the bones be charred. Then set the empty pot on the coals till it becomes hot and its copper glows so that its impurities may be melted and its deposit burned away. It has frustrated all efforts. Its heavy deposit has not been removed, not even by fire. Verse 13. Now your impurity is lewdness. Because I tried to cleanse you, but you would not be cleansed from your impurity. You will not be clean again until my wrath against you has subsided. I, the Lord, have spoken. The time has come for me to act. I will not hold back. I will not have pity, nor will I relent. You will be judged according to your conduct and your actions, declares the Sovereign Lord. And here at the end of this section, from chapters 12 on, things are sort of tied together. A city of bloodshed, as we've seen, goes beyond just murder and the shedding of blood. It, It deals with various sins. The mineral impurities burned away. The lewdness of their actions, it all comes together. And so this nursery rhyme or cooking song about, you know, put it on, add wood, put the water in, put the meat in. God's like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to do to you guys. That's what's going to happen to Jerusalem. 
I've tried and I've tried to cleanse you, to get you to stop doing the things that you're doing. No? Okay, now it's time for judgment. And you'll be put into the pot, into the cauldron. At this point, we might be a bit relieved. No more of this judgment, 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 okay? We might think it'd be intriguing, it'd be interesting. I think I'd like to be a prophet. Um, Well, if you read Ezekiel's story, you'd say, no, maybe not. Because think of the things that we've seen thus far. He's been told that judgment and disaster will fall on Jerusalem, the capital of his home country. The wickedness of the people has been revealed. I think Ezekiel perhaps did not have any idea of the extent of the wickedness of the people back home. And the history of his people. That yeah, uh, did you think that your ancestors were good people and that's why I delivered them? No, 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 no. They've been a wicked and rebellious people ever since. Yeah, I don't think this is something I want to hear. And then the things he had to endure. He was made mute for a period of time. And as we come to the end of chapter 24, we're not quite sure if this is when the muteness ends. But God says, okay, here's my word. Now you're not going to be able to speak. Okay? Then he is told to shut himself up in his house. Remember, he's to lay on one side for 390 days, on the other side for 40 days. He's to eat what would be a starvation diet. He was to shave his head and beard with a sword. Yeah, I don't think I want to be a prophet anymore. But the most difficult is now to come. Verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, with one blow, I am about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. Yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. Groan quietly, do not mourn for the dead. Keep your turban fastened and your sandals on your feet. Do not cover the lower part of your face or eat the customary food of mourning. So I spoke to the people in the morning. And in the evening, my wife died. The next morning I did as I had been commanded. With one blow, suddenly and unexpectedly. If someone were to ask you, based on what we've seen thus far in the book of Ezekiel, what kind of man was Ezekiel? We might say, well, he is very disciplined, self-disciplined, very rigid, almost stoic, unyielding. His passion for the truth and for the honor of God, he stands for the truth. It's like a a very rigid stance. We probably wouldn't say that he was tender-hearted, though we have read about him mourning for Jerusalem and her people. But here in the middle of the book, there are 48 chapters, we find Ezekiel to be human. We didn't know he was married. Now we are told. And as to the nature of his relationship, his wife is described as the delight of your eyes. 
not your old lady, not the old ball and chain, not even your wife. God doesn't say your wife. He says rather the delight of your eyes. And here we, we find great tenderness and joy in his marriage. It has been said that often a man is seen for what he really is only when he is seen in conjunction with his wife. Now Ezekiel is revealed to us as a human being with deep emotions, with great love for his wife. And the Lord tells him, I'm going to take away the delight of your eyes. For four and a half years, Ezekiel has been conveying the word of the Lord regarding the disaster and the loss of life that will happen to Jerusalem and, and Judah. And we've been seeing that, in fact, Jerusalem and Judah deserve this because of their great sin. Now he is told that God is going to take away the delight of his eyes. Not that she's going to die, that's implied. In fact, she does die. But I am going to take away. It's not like she has some illness, a lingering illness or a fever that's been there for a while. Apparently she's in good health and God says, I'm going to take her. The questions that must have come to Ezekiel's mind. What have I done? Am I not doing the Lord's work? Am I not doing the right thing? Why is this happening to me? And then it gets worse. Because God says, okay, I'm going to take away the delight of your eyes. The woman you love deeply. But don't cry for her. Don't lament. Don't mourn. Verse 17, groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. Keep your turban fastened and your sandals on your feet. Do not cover the lower part of your face or eat the customary food. It's not bad enough that God is going to take away his wife. He's told now not to mourn. And this seems cruel. I mean, on two fronts. First of all, God's going to take away his wife. And then God says, don't cry about it. Okay, don't mourn the loss of your wife. It is, in fact, a symbolic action, just like his lying on his side for 390 days or shaving his head with the sword, these various symbolic acts. Um, yeah, but I think the other ones were much easier than this. It's an act of precognition. He is told what's going to happen. And if you look, he says, I spoke to the people in the morning and in the evening, my wife died. We see now that after four and a half years, the people have come to recognize him as a prophet. So when he doesn't do the normal things for mourning, that is, he doesn't take the turban off his head, he doesn't take the sandals off his feet, he doesn't cover the lower part of his face, he doesn't eat the bread of mourning. This is what you do when you've lost a loved one. Um, People are like, this must mean something. He's, this isn't normal. His wife, who we know he loves deeply, God has taken her away, or she's died suddenly. Um, they may not know that God has done this. Ezekiel will tell them. But Ezekiel's not acting normal. What, what's this all about? So they come to him, verse number 19. Then the people ask me, won't you tell us what these things have to do with us? 
typically human, it's, it's all about me. What does this have to do with us? So I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm about to desecrate my sanctuary, the stronghold in which you take pride, the delight of your eyes, the object of your affection. The sons and daughters you left behind will fall by the sword. And you will do as I have done. You will not cover the lower part of your face or eat the customary fruit of mourning, mourners. You will keep your turbans on your heads and sandals on your feet. You will not mourn or weep, but will waste away because of your sins and groan among yourselves. And now it's as though an outsider is speaking. Ezekiel will be assigned to you. You will do just as he has done. When this happens, you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. And you, son of man, on the day I take away their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes, their heart's desire, and their sons and daughters as well, on that day a fugitive will come to tell you the news. At that time your mouth will be opened, you will speak with him, and will no longer be silent. So you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel is assigned to the exiles. Disaster is coming. He's been saying so for four and a half years. The stronghold in which you take pride, Jerusalem, the temple, the delight of your eyes. Oh, the same language as used of Ezekiel's wife. The object of your affection. Your sons and daughters left behind, they're going to die. They're going to be killed by the sword. But you are not to mourn. Because what in fact has happened is God's judgment on them. These three chapters have been most difficult in preparing for the sermon. But some things I think we should take away from this. First of all, sin is terrible. Sin is terrible. I don't think we always think that. There's certain things we do that, yeah, I know it's not right, but it's, it's not a big deal. Okay. Um, the language of chapter 23 is something that you should read over and over and over again, lest you think your sin is nothing. Your sin is vile. Okay? It is lewdness. And go back to chapter 22. It's bloodshed. That's what our sin is. So when we have the prayer of confession, we're like, well... Okay, I, I guess I'll go along with this. Um, sorry for what we've done. Um, we need to recognize that our sin is horrible. And Ezekiel's description might seem indelicate, crude even, but it's accurate. Sin is vile. And we should not imagine that only certain classes of people sin. Oftentimes, if you're at the lower end of the economic scale, you imagine the people at the other end of the scale, they are the sinners. Or if you're at the upper end, you might imagine that, oh, those poor people, they you know, must have done something wrong, that's why they're so poor. And what we see is, no, nope, all have sinned. If you're in a position of authority where God put you, you have sinned. If you're in a position of spiritual authority, 
you are a sinner. It's not like, oh, you're a wonderful person. You should be in charge. All have sinned. There's something else here that we, I just sort of went over quickly, but their failure to show respect to parents, to neighbors, to those in need, the fatherless and the widow. I think if you were to ask people, give me in one word uh, what American culture is, what Americans are like. I don't think respect is the word that comes to mind. Um, In watching various historical shows, historical movies, I'm always struck by how that they bowed or curtsied or tipped their hat or they they didn't just like, hey, you know, what's up? Respect is something that does not come naturally to us, I think, as a people. But as God's people, we are to recognize that every single person is made in the image of God. You see someone on the street, that person bears God's image. And we are to treat them with respect. And then what made this ultimately most difficult is the story of Ezekiel's wife. On the one hand, I'm glad because we see Ezekiel as a human being, as a man, as a husband. Um, And we're given sort of a glimpse into his life that his wife was not simply the old lady, she was the delight of his eyes. But, and I want to make this clear, this is a narrative this is not instructional, okay? This passage is not telling us that when we lose a loved one, we're not to mourn, okay? Because if you think about it, in John 11, when Lazarus died and Jesus went to the tomb, Jesus wept. It is natural as human beings to grieve at the loss of a loved one. And so what Ezekiel is called on to do is most unnatural, but it is to be symbolic. The people in exile are to follow his example. When the messenger comes and says, Jerusalem has fallen, and that's going to happen in about nine chapters, they are not to mourn. They're not to take off their sandals because that was the custom among Jews when they mourn, or take the turban off, or put something over the lower part of your face, which is what lepers did, by the way. Lepers covered the lower part of their face. And they are not to eat the bread of mourning. But first Ezekiel has to do it. You want to be a prophet? I don't think so. But by God's grace, we are his people. People that he has rescued from sin, the sin of idolatry, sin that is more vile than we can imagine. And by his grace, he has saved us. I heard a pastor say once that if we could see ourselves the way that God sees us, we would die. It would would crush us. And the way that we sort of get around that is we ignore our sin. Jerusalem ignored their sin. Judah ignored their sin. 
God didn't, and judgment is coming. And we should thank God for Ezekiel's faithfulness to proclaim the word of the Lord no matter the cost. Let's pray together. Our Father, we freely confess that there are portions of your word that we delight in, that we enjoy, that we seem to gain real benefit from. There are other passages like what we've seen today that are most difficult. The God we think we understood is gone. Here we have a God who speaks in crude terms to speak of the wickedness and the rebelliousness of his people. Here is a God who takes away a man's beloved wife and then tells him not to mourn about it. We are instantly reminded that your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. While we may want to sit in judgment on you, we have no right to do so. You made us and we have rebelled. You sent your son to call us back. By your grace, we have become your people. And yet, like Judah, we still sin. We thank you for your amazing grace in the face of our great wickedness. And we ask for grace to trust you as apparently Ezekiel did because he obeyed you faithfully even in the face of the loss of his beloved wife. May we think on these things in the days to come. May your spirit bring them to mind as we meditate on them. And in the process, may we be drawn closer to you to a God who does, in fact, love us deeply. For whom we are the apple of your eye. A God of all grace. Help us as we work through these things. This is the first day of a new week, your day. We begin with you. We ask for your guidance and your strength as we walk through the world in the coming days. May your grace and your spirit go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.